Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 38, The Esoteric Aristotle, Part 1. Now, gentle listener, you may be thinking something along the lines of, The Esoteric Aristotle? I thought Plato was the esoteric one, and Aristotle was the down-to-earth sort of guy, much more in line with modern scientific method than his master Plato. I mean, in episode 33, you had a detail from Raphael's famous fresco, The School of Athens, where Plato is pointing towards heaven, while Aristotle is sort of gesturing with a flat palm towards more mundane concerns. Are you saying that this isn't true, that Aristotle was actually a crazy esotericist with his head in the clouds after all? No, gentle listener, that's not what I'm saying exactly, but it's complicated. In fact, in this episode, and in part two, the next episode, we'll be looking at four Aristotles, each of which has a different character, and only one of which really existed historically as a person, but each of whom plays a central role in the history of Western esotericism. But before we get to that, let's look at this well-known Plato-Aristotle dichotomy for a minute. Raphael's fresco, you can see a detail from it in the notes to this episode for reference, comes to us from the Italian Renaissance, the year 1509 to be precise. In this milieu, people were actually going back to the original Greek and reading Plato and Aristotle for the first time in a way unmediated by late antique and medieval concerns. And we've inherited from this period the iconic dichotomy of Plato and Aristotle, which I take to be something like this. Plato is an esoteric writer, or at least that's how he's almost always been read by everyone from late antiquity until the 19th century, as we saw in episode 25. Aristotle, by way of contrast, lays his cards on the table. Even if he's sometimes obscure or difficult, which he is, he's not trying to hide anything. Plato is fascinated by the idea of a pure noetic reality, a kind of unimpeachable intellectual truth. Aristotle is much more empirical having done reassuringly modern things like taxonomies of shellfish and other experimental research programs. So we have an esoteric-exoteric divide, and we have an idealist-empiricist divide. And this modern reception of the figures of Plato and Aristotle has come to be an iconic representation for two ways of approaching the problem of truth. You've got the Platos who have their heads in the clouds, and you've got the Aristotles who are doing kind of uh, experimental research. So this is what I take to be the popular reputation of our two philosophers. And there's actually some truth in it for once, but there's so much more waiting beneath the surface. And to get at that, we really do need to look more than anywhere else at Aristotle's historical association with the esoteric. So what we'll be looking at in this double episode are four different aspects to the character of Aristotle. First, we have Aristotle the philosopher, the actual historical student of Plato and teacher of Alexander the Great. Then we need to discuss Aristotle II, whom we might also call Pseudo-Aristotle I. This is the esoteric Aristotle of later antiquity, the Aristotle whom the Platonist philosophers absorbed into their tradition and made many different uses of. And this Aristotle already appears in the sources as an esotericist, in exactly what sense we shall see in the course of this episode. Moving on to part two of our esoteric Aristotle story, we'll discuss the crucially influential philosophic pseudo-Aristotle, 
author of two pivotal works of medieval metaphysics, the so-called Theology of Aristotle and the Book of Causes. As we shall see, this pseudo-Aristotle was and remains one of the seminal authors of the post-classical Western esoteric tradition, so it's appropriate that he never actually existed. Finally, our fourth Aristotle, or third pseudo-Aristotle, if you prefer, was a highly prolific author of treatises on natural magic, astrology, occult physiognomy, and even hermetic texts. Medieval thinkers definitely did not share the modern idea that Aristotle was the definition of a down-to-earth, staunchly empiricist thinker. So just to be clear, what we're mainly looking at here is a reception history. That is, we're not looking primarily at Aristotle the philosopher, on whom we actually have pretty decent historical documentation and a pretty decent body of surviving texts. That's our Aristotle number one. And this guy really wasn't too esoteric in the sense used by this podcast, although his work is relevant to the development of the term esoteric itself, as we shall see. No, we are more interested in later reception, firstly of Aristotle's works by Platonists with their own philosophic agenda. And remember, the Platonists are the movement where Western esotericism really gets started. And secondly, of the figure of Aristotle, the idea of Aristotle, one might say the icon of Aristotle, as it developed through the ages. And it's not surprising that a serious aura of authority developed around the name of Aristotle. Even if he had been a philosophical lightweight, he was the student of Plato and the teacher of Alexander the Great. That's a serious pedigree. Plus, as it happens, he was the opposite of a philosophical lightweight, having written the first studies in a number of important fields and changed philosophy and science forever. So, having built our boy's reputation up, let's have a quick look at this great philosopher with a view to what he was actually doing in 4th century Athens and later, and then we'll look at the historical ripples which he sent out into Western esotericism through the other three Aristotles. So, Aristotle number one is one of the most important, influential, and original thinkers in the history of the world, actually. He wrote about 200 works, of which about 30 survive, on just about every topic which might be of interest to a 4th century polymath. From biology to the weather to astronomy, physics and metaphysics, poetry and drama, ethics and political theory, epistemology, and the first systematic treatments of logic. In fact, Aristotle kind of invented logic. If by logic we mean the systematic study of the validity of propositions, which is what is usually meant by logic in the sort of philosophical realm. So he was born in the year 384 BCE in the small polis of Stagira in Macedonia, and he went to Athens as a young man to study at Plato's academy, where he stayed until round about Plato's death in the year 347. So he was Plato's student, or he was a student at the academy anyway, for a heck of a long time, although we don't really have a clear picture of what it meant to be a student of the academy, what exactly went on. The academy may have been a lot more like one of the centers for advanced studies that we find in modern universities than a school in the usual sense with Plato as the teacher. What little picture we can form of the day-to-day -day activities of the academy seems to show a flow of ideas, an exchange of ideas, with many philosophers, actually, with different 
ideas working on different projects and sort of interacting with each other and testing each other's ideas out, rather than an image of Plato just sort of decanting wisdom into his students. But we really can't say. At any rate, Aristotle left Athens when Plato died, and he traveled around various parts of the Greek, oikumene, teaching here and there and writing books. And he was summoned to become the tutor for the young Alexander by Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon. Scholars have various theories as to how long Aristotle was teaching Alexander. Two years is one figure, eight years is another figure, and some even say that the whole thing never happened. But on balance, it probably did happen, and we probably can't know for sure either how long the older philosopher instructed the young world emperor in potentia, or what form that instruction took exactly. Alexander at some point went off to conquer the world, and begin the period we know as the Hellenistic. And Aristotle, meanwhile, continued with his various researches until his death in the year 322 BCE. Now, Aristotle is said to have founded his own school. Again, what this means exactly is a bit unclear. This was known as the Peripatos, the wandering around, because the members of the school strolled up and down while doing their philosophic thing. This term peripatos was actually applied to philosophic schools more generally as well, so it seems like walking around while philosophizing was a general practice. But for whatever reason, Aristotle's school got stuck with the name, and philosophers following Aristotle's teachings are known as peripatetics, or peripatetic philosophers. While Aristotle's philosophy seems not to have been adopted really as a way of life, or indeed to have been hugely popular in the centuries immediately following his death, his thought became enormously influential in the later Roman period, and we have a huge body of commentaries on Aristotle from this period, a monumental critical edition of which has recently been completed under the editorship of Richard Sarabji. This is about all we need to say about Aristotle number one. This Aristotle has been covered in immense detail by many historians of philosophy and philosophers proper, and we're not even going to attempt the monumental task of addressing his contributions to Western thought here. But we should say one thing about him before moving on. As we discussed in episode 37, Aristotle is the first esoteric author in a certain sense. How so? Well, the word exoterikos appears eight times in the Aristotelian corpus. The sense of the term is something like for public consumption. So Aristotle wrote works for different audiences. The exoterikoi logoi, the public or open works, were aimed at a general audience outside the formal teaching milieu of the peripatos. So these exoteric works included many works which we'd love to possess, like Aristotle's lost philosophic dialogues, which it would be amazing to be able to compare with Plato's dialogues. But sadly, all of his exoteric works are lost. What we have are his esoteric works, the term esoterikos, meaning for a limited readership, first appears quite late in the works of Galen in the first or early second century CE, but it is in the context of Galen discussing Aristotle, and it's safe to assume that this term existed earlier than this as the natural contrast to the term exoterikos. So Aristotle is the first author whose works are divided up into exoteric and esoteric. The so-called esoteric works of Aristotle, which are all that we possess, vary a lot in how polished they seem to be. Some of them, like the metaphysics and the de anima on the soul, 
really do present serious problems for interpreters. And this is probably because they were something more like lecture notes or texts for students who were also attending lectures and could ask questions. They're esoteric in this narrow sense. If you're not already trained in Aristotle's philosophy, you probably aren't going to get what's in these texts. So as we mentioned in episode 37, we're in the peculiar situation of having none of the exoteric works of Aristotle, that is, the ones produced for a general readership, which would presumably be the ones we could interpret quite easily, and quite a few of his esoteric works, the ones which give historians of philosophy sleepless nights. We do have. Now, the esotericism of Aristotle we're talking about here is not esotericism in the sense that we define it in this podcast as. That is, knowledge revealed as being hidden, one, and two, crucially, knowledge of a categorically higher nature than normal everyday knowledge. For our definition, the secret knowledge in question needs to be something outside the realm of ordinary facts that one might learn. Perhaps revelatory knowledge straight from the mouth of the divine, perhaps transcendent insights, or what have you. I don't think Aristotle would have understood this idea of esoteric knowledge, because the idea of a special sui generis class of knowledge would have seemed absurd to him. If it's knowable, we can know it, and that's the end of the story. This seems to be Aristotle's approach to epistemology. But we wanted to mention the fact that the term esoteric, in its Greek form, esoterikos, first appears on record in the context, not of Plato, but of Aristotle, which is one of those funny, interesting tricks history sometimes plays on us. And as we shall see, it wasn't long before the dichotomy of esoteric and exoteric works of Aristotle took on a life of its own, and we start to see an Aristotle who is esoteric very much in the sense familiar to students of Western esotericism. So this is our second Aristotle. Let's move on to him the Aristotle of the later classical commentary tradition, the Aristotle as received by Platonism, and Aristotle as he's depicted in the corpus of writings which grew up around Alexander the Great. So Alexander spawned a rich and fertile stream of legendary stories almost as soon as he died, and even viewed with a strict eye for historical evidence, he did do some pretty legend-worthy stuff, so it's no wonder. And Aristotle as a main supporting character in the Alexander story, acquired his own legendary or semi-legendary life story in this material. Letters between Aristotle and Alexander circulated in antiquity. Now these are almost certainly pseudo-Aristotle writing to pseudo-Alexander and vice versa. These letters don't survive in their full form, but we have fragments of lots of them quoted by other authors. And there's a particular episode mentioned by Plutarch which shows the figure of Aristotle advancing further into the territory which we know as esoteric, already in the first century CE. So let's discuss this episode, which I think is a very good illustration of the evolution of the figure of Aristotle into something much more of an esoteric philosopher and even an authority on higher wisdom. So Plutarch, whom we shall of course be covering with a number of episodes when we arrive at the first century CE, was a middle Platonist philosopher of the Roman imperial period. And he was a man of many talents and wide-ranging interests, one of which was writing innovative biographies of great historical figures. And he wrote A Life of Alexander. In The Life of Alexander, we see what might be our earliest glimpse of an Aristotle who has been fully esotericized and brought into the Platonist fold as a teacher with access to higher knowledge. We learn from Plutarch 
that Alexander had learned both the open teachings of Aristotle, that's the ethical and political materials, but also, quote, the secret and deeper teachings, ton aporeton kai bathuteron didaskalion, which men call by the special terms acroamatic and epoptic, and used not to reveal to the many. End of quote. Now, listeners who remember our survey of the technical terminology associated with the mystery cults in ancient Greece in episode 13 will recognize the words Plutarch is using here. Aporreta are secrets, items of knowledge which cannot be uttered in the presence of non-initiates. The term epoptic is a reference to epopteia, the act of viewing, which was the culmination of the Eleusinian mysteries and many other mystery cults. This is usually interpreted by scholars as a literal viewing of some sacred objects, possibly associated with a bright light following a long period of darkness. So this epopteia was a culmination of the ritual. So the higher philosophy of Aristotle is being labeled as esoteric, not in terms of some pragmatic concern that unprepared students might not understand a given esoteric work, which is a plausible motive for Aristotle once, having had two bodies of works, the exoteric and the esoteric. This is esoteric in terms of the middle Platonist equation of the higher realms of philosophy with mysteries, a thematic topos which, as we've seen, comes from Plato himself. This is confirmed by the fact that they, presumably meaning Aristotle himself and, and his initiated inner circle of students, they used not to reveal these teachings to the many. The Greek ouk exephiron, used not to reveal, equates revealing these secrets with the criminal act of ekferein, which literally means to carry or bring out, and probably originally referred to a literal stealing of the sacred objects from the temenos, the sacred precinct of the mysteries. But by the classical period, this term comes to mean unlawful divulging of any aspect of mystic practice or teaching. So ekferein, to carry out, is basically playing fast and loose with the mystic obligation of secrecy. So Aristotle's esoteric wisdom is firmly within the sui generis, even initiatory, realm of knowledge. Since it's initiatory, knowing it accords to the knower a change of status, because that's what initiation did in a social sense. Plutarch also describes these philosophic materials as acroamatic. You might be scratching your heads about this term, and it's most easily interpreted as a reference to the Pythagorean legends of inner and outer circles of Pythagorean students, which we discussed in episode 18 of the podcast. So Alexander is privy to both of these levels of Aristotle's teaching, the inner and the outer. So he's like the mystic initiate. He's also a bit like the inner circle of Pythagoras' students. But check this out. Plutarch goes on directly to cite a letter from Alexander to Aristotle, and just to be clear, no one thinks that these letters were genuine. And indeed, this particular one can probably be dated to the first century, since it has telltale signs of Neo-Pythagorean literary secrecy, which hadn't been invented yet in Aristotle's day. So in the letter, Alexander is upset with Aristotle, because he's heard that Aristotle has published his acroamatic works, which makes them common coin, and thus devalues them in Alexander's eyes. He asks Aristotle, quote, In what will we excel over others if these doctrines are learned by all? End of quote. Aristotle's reply is described by Plutarch as 
placating Alexander's love of honors, ten philotimian autu paramuthumenos. So Aristotle placates Alexander by reassuring him that the knowledge, though publicly known, is still secret knowledge. How does he do this? He responds to Alexander that he has, quote, both published them and not published them, end of quote. Since the writings on physics, which are the secret doctrines, are of no use to the general man in the street, being written only as memoranda for those who had already received the full course of peripatetic education. So on the one hand, Aristotle is telling us what modern scholars have agreed on, certain of Aristotle's texts, and I guess we're probably talking here about the physics and maybe the metaphysics, which we still have, are lecture notes rather than polished treatises, or they're, they're summaries of lectures for students to go back over to revise. And they're really hard to understand if you haven't sat through the lectures. But on the other hand, we have here an example of the delightful esoteric trope of the self-hiding secret. And this is a trope which plays out through the history of Western esotericism in many contexts. We'll be seeing it again in the podcast for sure. The uninitiated are excluded from the secret, not because we, the initiated, are hiding it, but because they, the uninitiated, simply will not understand it or will not recognize it even if they see it. They won't see the secret for what it is because they are uninitiated. Alexander's awareness that the power of secret knowledge may inhere in the secrecy rather than in the knowledge is a striking one. Whether we want to attribute it to the authors of the Alexander-Aristotle correspondence or to Plutarch, it shows a very shrewd understanding on Alexander's part of the value of esoteric knowledge in terms of social capital, one which we might perhaps expect from a politician like Alexander. If everyone knows it, it's no longer esoteric, and therefore it's no longer valuable. So I find this discussion of the pseudo-Aristotelian, pseudo-Alexandrian correspondence an illuminating glimpse into the social aspect of esotericism, of rhetorical secrecy as concrete prestige and power. This episode from Plutarch is a fascinating snapshot of the development of Aristotle from an author with some more technical works which are not for public consumption, which is a pretty uninteresting type of esotericism if you ask me to a fully-fledged philosophic esotericist with initiatory teachings of the type the Platonists loved so much. Now we're in the first century CE here, so this gives us some idea of when this evolution was occurring in the Roman period. And there's one other evolution which occurs in this period, and later stretches into late antiquity, which is very relevant to the history of Western esotericism. And this is the rise of the harmonizing reading of Plato and Aristotle. So now we're moving forward in time here and looking at the whole history of antique Platonism, from about Plutarch's day right up to the latest Platonists like Proclus and Damascius, who were working in the 5th century period when the Western Roman Empire was collapsing. And we should be covering this territory in much greater detail later, but now is a good place to make some general points about the kind of interpretive life which our Aristotle number two underwent at the hands of the Platonists of late antiquity. As we mentioned earlier, Aristotle's work only gained in prestige as antiquity progressed. And as we know, he was a student of Plato. So no wonder then that Platonists wanted to sort of absorb his work into their canon. 
often, it is true, making use only of the bits that they found useful for their own projects, but nevertheless using a heck of a lot of Aristotle, which they often considered to be a kind of Plato for beginners. So late antique Platonist curricula would often recommend starting out with Aristotle and then moving on to the serious stuff, that is the Platonic dialogues, especially the Platonic dialogues dealing with metaphysics. Now, how do you harmonize Plato and Aristotle? Their ideas are often at variance, and Aristotle is even on record as saying things like, Plato could never get the theory of forms to work, which is not the sort of statement that Platonists really want to hear. Well, the short answer is, you harmonize their thought. That is, you find the symphonia, or in Latin, concordia, between their thought. These are the technical terms that were used in late antiquity to, to describe this process. And the single most pressing problem of harmonization in later antiquity was that of making the two greats, Plato and Aristotle, agree. So how do you find the concordia between them? One of the chief tools used by the Platonists, I would argue, was that of esoteric interpretation. We know that there was a large body of works devoted specifically to the problem of harmonizing our two thinkers, such as Porphyry's On the Agreement of Plato and Aristotle. And while little enough of this literature survives, it's clear that the main procedure was to start with Plato, or rather to start with the suppositions of Platonist philosophy, which might differ quite a bit from what we moderns find in Plato. But anyway, you start with your take on Plato, and then you take the seeming contradictions in Aristotle and show that they're not, in fact, contradictions, because Aristotle's meaning is not necessarily available on the surface of his text. And Aristotle can be read in this subtextual way. Why? Because he is, as we've seen already in the first century, an esoteric author concerned with keeping the mysteries of higher philosophy out of the hands of the many. So, of course, he writes with subtexts. He will, of course, have written in such a way that the secret is a self-hiding one, there to be read in his semiotically rich texts, but discernible only to the initiate. Now, this kind of reading is especially associated with authors like Proclus and the late antique Athenian school founded by Plutarch of Athens. That's not the same as the earlier Plutarch we talked about, of which Proclus was a member. But as we've seen, the seeds for reading Aristotle esoterically were already being planted in the first century CE. So that brings us to the end of our first part of our diptych on the esoteric Aristotle. And we've covered two Aristotles of antiquity in a very summary way. Number one, the great philosopher, the one you can get a much better idea about by listening to other podcasts or reading books by historians of philosophy proper than from this podcast. And Aristotle too, the early esoteric Aristotle, who has an esoteric initiatory dimension to his teaching, and who became an important thinker in the philosophical currents known as Platonism. And you won't find out much about him from other podcasts because he's an Aristotle that historians of philosophy like to forget about. In our next episode, we're going to take things forward into the Middle Ages and discuss two more pseudo-Aristotles. One a philosopher, in the kind of normal sense of the term, and the other one a rather more exotic thinker, one of the great medieval authorities on occult sciences. Until then, you'll want to be like the hidden meaning of Aristotle's works on physics, and even if you are published for all the world to see, stay esoteric. <laughs>